A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to Drive, BOF's new podcast series, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. This week, I sit down with Tom Chapman, who, with his wife, Ruth, co-founded Matches Fashion, which grew from one boutique in London's Wimbledon into a global player in fashion e-commerce. Last year, Tom and Ruth exited their business and sold it for $1 billion. Looking back, I would say to you that there was no specific long-term strategy. Let's launch online and let's grow into a global international business. The decisions we made have always been customer-focused decisions. You have to have a vision of what you're going to do and you have to deliver that vision. Often, the logic tells you not to do something, but you need to keep the magic of a business. You need to keep its personality. You need to keep its DNA of what it is. And you need to accept the fact that Sometimes things just don't have the return that they should, but you need to have that representation to really be creative and to create a point of difference. So here's my conversation with Tom Chapman to learn what it really takes to build a global fashion business from scratch. Good morning, Tom Chapman. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. We are here to discuss the drive behind Matches Fashion. Um, which was recently sold to Apex um, at a valuation reported to be around a billion dollars. And anyone who's built a billion dollar business 
um, knows that that doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes resilience. It takes the effort to get through challenges and and unexpected situations. But I thought in kind of exploring this story with you that we would start at the beginning with your first store in 1987 in Wimbledon Village. I mean, back then, Tom, what was the motivation to open a fashion boutique? What was the fashion industry like back then? Good morning, Imran. <laughs> Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I suppose um, that the, the real... It's 1987. I was young. I'd worked in catering and management. I'd left school when I was 16, hated the restrictive nature of uh, school and the structure behind it. And I'd worked in a few luxury businesses and a few luxury hotels. And I'd reached a point where actually I realized that I was pretty much unemployable. And Why in- is that? Because I suppose I was a slight maverick. I wanted to do things in my way. I hated the sense of authority. And in a large way, I suppose... I wanted to be a creature of my own destiny. I wanted to drive my own future, and I wanted to be control my future. And for that reason, I suppose that's the nature of many self-employed people or people who start businesses. Um, and for that reason, the one thing I knew was that I wanted to work for myself. But I really wasn't sure what to do. And I walked past a, a store in Wimbledon Village, an old men's outfitters that sold... Um, you know, sort of, I think it was like Saint shirts at the time under license, you know, it's all that sort of licensed product. And I thought, this could be interesting. Why don't I try and do this? Um, I didn't know where to start. What do you mean it was interesting? I felt that it was an opportunity. I thought that something should happen. I thought that there needed to be a shift. I had an aesthetic interest in fashion. That was really my only knowledge. Um, had a retail, ex- a no retail experience. And here I was in Wimbledon, which was this suburb of London, a very affluent suburb of London, um, but very small, and it felt very much in the past. And, you know, there was a certain an energy in London at the time. There was an energy of that anything was possible, that opportunity was possible. So um, I felt that that was a good thing to do. And, and here we go, um, tiny bit of money, um, a lot of goodwill from friends and uh, family, and uh, a pot of paint, and off I went. I just got on with it. So what? What when you opened the store the first day... Mm-hmm. What brands were you carrying? Like, what was going on in fashion at the time? Oh, I mean, I think it was a very, very different business. You know, Ruth joined very quickly. After Ruth, your a, wife. Yeah. Your now my wife. wife. My now wife joined yeah. um, very quickly and, and redirected it. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a sense of marketing. I had a sense of connection with consumers. Um, I knew how to sell product. Um, and really, I was walking around this area that we're in now, in this Market Street area of London, and, and sort of working in this, what was at the time, sort of cash and carry type businesses. Um, really? So you were walking in and buying product and yeah. taking it back to the yeah. store? Yeah, well, you know, I couldn't fund it. I mean, I just started. I mean, I had no idea. So it was a bit like a glorified wheelbarrow, you know, it was kind of like out there on... on uh, in uh, in the market almost um not that not quite that bad but you know there was a certain energy and experience about it i think ruth joined and and um ruth has the most amazing visionary um uh ideas and expression of brands and product and knows what the customer wants before they want it she was started to travel and she went to italy she came back one day um with a bunch of sweaters which i can't remember the name of them but um they were selling for about £350, which, you know, 30 years ago was a lot in of Italy. money. Yeah, she yeah. bought them in Italy, brought them over. And we sold out of them in about two or three days. 
So I think at that point, very early on, there was a big step change. We knew we needed to step it up. We needed to uh, start to look to the consumer and the kind of products we could potentially sell. So very soon after that, we started to bring in lots of brands. The industry was very exciting. We uh, were working with Versace. We bought. We were the first people to bring Prada into the UK. We were working with Gianfranco Ferri, Enrico Covri, all of these brands. Very interesting labels. Lanvin, we bought in very early. Bottega, we were the first retailer to have Bottega in the UK. Um, and that period of time was very interesting in fact that we were in Wimbledon, this tiny retail location, 60 stores. Um, and there became, you know, a need to really focus on the customer service, really trying to connect with the consumer, because frankly, there weren't that many of them around. We didn't have a great catchment area and we were pulling in the consumers and really taking care of them. And I think that attitude towards customer service, you know, a lot of people say it's customer first. The truth is that our business has always been that. Everything that we've done has been firstly, how does the customer respond to it? And that came from those early days of really taking care of the consumer. We grew the business to, over a period of years, we opened five more stores in Wimbledon, um, all having a different curation of product, all having a different mix. We opened stores in Richmond, had a couple of stores in Richmond, um, all with different brands, different product selections. You know, I was always fascinated by retail in the States. Used to travel a lot in America, you know, the old original Barneys that was in Chelsea, an amazing store. I think Julie Gilhart was there at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, Chalavari. Oh, yes. I mean, what a store that was. Yeah. Quite incredible. And, you know, it was the epicenter of New York and what was happening. Run also by a couple, Wiser, I think their name was John and Selma Wiser, who run that store. Kind of incredible place. Maxfield in LA just opened sort of late, uh, mid-90s in that sort of period. And we went into this store one day, which was in the suburbs of LA, Los Angeles, an amazing store. And we were chatting to these people who turned out to be the owners, really charming people. And I, we left that store and we thought, God, we really need to rethink because one day when we're in our mid forties, it's not criticism of them, but we're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Ron Ross in, in Los Angeles, taking people around our various stores. And we need to change and we need to start to think about being in central London. You started thinking about, is that the life you want? And is this the opportunity? Well, I think it was a life that we didn't want to be right. Mr. and Mrs. Ron Ross. So how do we start to think about changing the business? Because it was very easy to be in these separate suburban, st suburban stores. Yeah. And it, there was a requirement to, to sort of... Uh, to, to reflect a little bit about what we actually wanted to do. So the first stage was for going from suburban to urban. Yeah. Is that when you opened Notting Hill? Yeah, we opened Notting Hill in the late 90s, 99. That's when I moved to Notting Hill, yeah. 1999. It was an amazing place. Yeah. You know, I mean, from the day it opened, suddenly we had press interest in what we were doing. And it sort of became, the store became the epicenter of Notting Hill life, you know, and, and partly London life as well. You used to, it always amazed me. You know, I think we brought that hospitality piece to the store. You know, every time you go in there, we had a fully stocked bar and, you know, there were always drinks being served, things coming over from Ottolenghi across the road. And, you know, it was always, there was an incredible atmosphere in there. There was this sort of party type of atmosphere and you'd walk in there and you'd see the most interesting people. You'd bump into the most incredible people. And it would be, it was kind of an ex really exciting um, point in, in the business development and, and the significant shift from being a suburban to a, to a London retailer. But the real shift happened many years later when you 
decided to go from suburban to urban yep. to global. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to spend a bit of time with you because your stories, your and Ruth's story of entrepreneurship is different to that of some of the other entrepreneurs we've talked to for this series, uh, some of whom were kind of sitting in a room somewhere and came up with a light bulb idea or stumbled into a business that they started building. Yours was really about pivoting your mm-hmm. your strategy. And, you know, to go from, you know, albeit a very important, you know, boutique in London with an international profile, to go from that to trying to build a global online retailer and compete with the likes of Net-A-Porte and Ukes and others that were around at the time and were still you know, pioneering that model, that is a big shift. So what was it, what was it that motivated you and Ruth to say, hey, you know what, like, there's something bigger we can do here? Yeah, I, I mean, looking back, I would say to you that there was no specific long-term strategy. Let's launch online and let's grow into a global international business. Um, the decisions we made have always been customer-focused decisions. And here we were with these retail locations, all having different curations and different edits of product, trying to talk to our customers, share with them the stock that was in different places. And, you know, 2000, and we launched in 2007, very early 2007. The online. Yeah, launched online then. Um, But, you know, it was a process. It was a year and a half process. And, you know, you look back at the market, um, and there weren't that many online players. You know, NAP had obviously started. Natalie had started in, I think, 2000 it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, I think at the time, you know, 2005, when we were looking, she was doing 11 million, something in that sort of region, 20 million in 2006. So it wasn't that we were trying to duplicate the success of others. It was really that we wanted to connect with our customers more. Um, You know, I've always been somebody who's maintained data and information about our customers from the very first store we bought that old apple plus um computer you know not the the colored pro versions but the really old one we used to write all the customer data and information and their purchasing history down it's always very important to me um so we felt that we should be reaching these customers and exciting them with the product that was new um and I suppose in many ways, like that very first decision to open retail, the decision to open li- online was really one of how do we connect with our customer? How do we build a business around this? But more importantly, what does the customer want? Because I've always believed that the customer's ahead of us and we're always trying to catch up with them. So that was really the driving point, um, sharing the product selection, the newness. From the very beginning, we put every single product that we had online. How many products was that? I think we launched with around 6,000 different options on the site um, on the day of launch. Everything had to go online. It was absolutely imperative to the the view about what it was because we wanted to be able to share that. So the, uh, the original idea, if I understand correctly, was less about going global and more about providing a full visibility of the product assortment across all of the stores. And because it's about product choice... You know, it wasn't just provisibility. It had to be shoppable. Of course, it had to be purchasable, but also it had to be shipped internationally. And that sounds kind of crazy in this world that we're in now, but there weren't many retailers who were shipping globally at that time. But, you know, I felt that if we were going to have our customers who were living in wherever, in town or in Notting Hill, and they were going to be in Hong Kong or they were going to be on holiday or they were commuting or traveling or whatever, we should be able to supply them wherever they were in the world. So from so day one... So it was one, still about that original customer. Yeah. It wasn't really about necessarily reaching really, new customers. It wasn't really, in, 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 in truth, about some sort of strategy about how we were going to grow a global online business and how we were going to find new customers. I think there was a huge shift very soon after we launched. 
So what that happened attitude. that made you realize that the opportunity was perhaps well, much bigger I, than you had imagined? I mean, I think that the very first day that we we launched um, in 2007, Claudia Crofter Style wrote a great piece for us. It was a three-page, four-page article in, in Sunday Times Style. And we were supposed to launch the day before. And I sat there with the tech team in their offices. We had a, somebody um, create the site for us. And um, they took it to the t from the test environment to put it live and it didn't work. Nothing worked. The whole site crashed. For literally in, in moments. And the article was coming out in the morning. And oh, I stayed no. there all Saturday with them. And I was through Sunday morning, you know, completely useless. I'm not a coder. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just running around, probably irritating everybody. <laughs> um, and... Um, you know, we sat there, I rushed out, I got the art, the paper from, at, you know, five o'clock or whatever it was from the, the local agent. Oh, shit. And I remember sitting there and they, they put up a page where people could put their, their details in and write comments. And I sat there. Um, I think we didn't launch until about 10 o'clock on Sunday night. It was about, it, we were down easily for about 16 hours when, when post the article coming out. And, um, the, the names of people scrolling through I was watching these names of people coming up and the comments that they were writing you know like I was like oh shit you know, this is a little bit not what I expected what were they saying oh I mean people were annoyed they were frustrated they were like yeah. how can you put an article and how can you not have your site live when you're doing your article good question good question I sat there trying to respond to everybody and I was like this is not really what I imagined you know I didn't think although we timed it for the article I didn't really imagine that we would have such a such a uh, a response and I, I can't remember the numbers but I think we signed up something like three or four thousand people on that in that first day to be notified um, about the site so then there was this sudden this is really interesting you know I'm a bit of a, a data geek I mean I love numbers I mean I'm obsessed with numbers um, and for me all of a sudden you know you're as a retailer as a physical retailer you try and watch your customers you count them that come through you look at your conversion rates what do you know? You don't know anything about their real journey. You know, right. I mean, at a time there were people developing cameras that followed pot spots around the retail stores and everything. You can't really gain all that information. All of a sudden, here I was with this incredible amount of information about consumers, about their purchasing habits, about the cat costs, about the conversion rates, you know, where they were coming from, what they were visiting, what they were engaging with. And it was so fascinating to me. And I think, you know, I'm. I'm not a huge believer in averages, so I, I mean, I think that averages cloud the opportunity. So I was really digging very deep on all of this data and really trying to understand, you know, what is the high value customer? What is the woman who's just spent 500 pounds on a t-shirt? Because this woman is really worth something as a new customer. We really need to onboard her for a process. So there was so, it was fascinating to me, all this information that we gained from it. And I think that's when really we suddenly thought in a very short period of time, this is really exciting. So tell me what happened like a year later. Yeah. You know, you've, you've had this kind of unfortunate situation with the launch, but clearly things gathered momentum after that. Yeah. What happened in a year? So the first year, I think we took, uh, well, we took in excess of two million in the first year. Um, Pounds. Yeah. And what did that represent as a percentage of your overall revenue? God, I can't remember the time. I guess it was around 15%, something in that in sort the first of year. In the first year. But I'm doing very, very little. You right. know, there was never, you know, I mean, 
I'm not exaggerating when I say to you that we had no facility to, to dispatch the goods. We had an office. We brought in the very best salespeople that we had and asked them to deal with the customers on the phone. Because for me, you know, it's one thing having a selling is a very important part, but you need to be so much better at it when you're dealing on the phone because you, you can't show the garment. You don't have that attachment to it. Sure. You've really got to be able to explain it properly. And we had, we literally picked from stores. So we were gathering all the stock from all the locations and picking it from the stores um, and sending it out internationally and managing it. Fortunately, we had great um, logistics partners to in, do that. In the startup land, that, they'd call that an MVP, right? Which yeah. is like as opposed to going off and investing in a huge warehouse yeah. until you knew what the demand really was yeah. before you'd learned about what logistics you might need, where your customers are, how international the footprint would be. Doing it from the store is kind of... In hindsight, it probably was very difficult, but it was a good way to learn about the customer. You know, I think that, you know, that there's a certain naivety that, that came with the launch of online. I don't think we expected it to be so significant. We certainly didn't expect it to be right. so significant initially. But, you know, naivety is sometimes a really good thing because it just enables you not to be paralyzed by fear and you just get on with it and, and you just work through it. And I think, you know, we all had a very can-do attitude. You know, we've got a problem. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to manage it? Um, it was a fascinating period that first couple of years. At some point, you know, it starts to scale to a, a situation where you started to face some challenges. And yeah. you and I have talked about these challenges in mm -hmm. the past. One of the challenges was that you were stocking brands like Celine yeah. and Prada. Mm -hmm. And if you were listing all of the products online, those brands at that time were very allergic to, to the internet. I mean, they thought it was this big, scary monster. Yeah. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Well, again, a certain level of naivety. I think that, you know, we didn't go out to, to directly engage with brands. We put the product up. A couple of brands really were not happy about it. Celine and Prada are two specifically. And they didn't want to be represented. And, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach to brands. You've got to deal with every brand very specifically, very differently. Um, but, you know, I felt very, very strongly that if we were going to have an online business, we needed to service the customer with everything that we had in a retail store. It was pointless of having stock in a store and not being able to service a customer um, with the stock online. It just didn't make sense. So how did you get around that? Well, we didn't. I mean, initially, um, and, you know, Prada was a massive business to us, a huge business, as was Celine. And initially, um, we said, you know, how do we work it? Do we deal with our VIP customers? But in the end, we just had to move away. We had to say, no, we can't, we can't work with you anymore. Come back, please. Even in the store? Yeah. No, no, no. It made no sense. You know, the, the product to me, it's not about a different offer in a store, a different offer online. It's a single view of the stock, a single view of the merchandise, a single view of the customer. You've got to unify those things together. So we had to, we had to stop buying them. And they represented a significant portion of your business. Particularly Prada, very yeah. significant percentage. Yeah, very significant percentage. And, you know, an enormous emotional one. You know, it was the first we bought, we bought Prada into the UK. Yeah. We were the first people to work with it. I remember, you know, literally turning up in their villa in, um, I can't remember where it was, and being presented the men's collection of three pairs of shoes and two T-shirts. I mean, oh, um, wow. I mean, really, really right early in the days. Right at the beginning. So that was a, you know, that was a, a challenge to do that. Um, but I felt it was imperative um, that we have... You know, the minute you start to make exceptions is the minute that you start to make exceptions for lots of people. And you have to have a vision of what you're going to do and you have to deliver that vision. And um, 
I didn't want to face those conversations with loads of other retailers, loads of other brands, so we just stepped away from them. This podcast is delivered by DHL as the logistics partner of many of fashion's biggest and most prestigious businesses. DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Now present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL has decades of expertise in logistics and is the world's leading partner for the fashion, jewelry and lifestyle industries, delivering over 1 billion parcels each year. Drawing on its entrepreneurial expertise, DHL offers tailored logistics solutions suitable for any fashion business. From emerging designers to established global mega brands, to independent stores, e-commerce giants, and direct-to-consumer startups. For more information about DHL, visit DHL.com. But the business continued to grow. Yeah. Paint a picture for us about you know what happened after those that initial two-year period when it when the you know the consumer was becoming much more comfortable with purchasing online. Technology was improving. Yeah. Um, the idea of buying luxury online was no longer a kind of, you know, niche opportunity. It had really yeah. become a mainstream one. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, that one of the great challenges probably that you face as a retailer, as a physical retailer, moving into digital... And, you know, in many ways, the physical journey has defined our digital one. When we look at the digital journey, we always look about what the physical interaction with the consumer is. But one of the challenges is the product selection. You know, when you're in a store, you want to have a variety of product. And we were looking at things that we were putting, you know, initially first, how many it was, five, 6,000 SKUs on the site. And then we were looking at the number of SKUs that actually sold and where the revenue was being driven from that. So you were learning very fast that there was a lot of, wasted effort to try and produce revenue um, and that was meaning that you were cataloging and stocking stuff online that wasn't really selling online it didn't sell online selling in stores it didn't sell online and it became very important for us to focus the business in what the opportunity of the growth was but not to lose the dna of our business we couldn't be driven purely by the performance of online we had to be driven by a very strong curation so it became even more important for ruth and the direction of of the buyers to really understand the product how its performance was how it was managing online and really to focus on that curation as a whole rather than as an individual so there was a big shift um in right general. because this is where data can become a problem for yeah. a business right because if you if you just go with what the data says you're going to lose that personalized or like that curation that matches yeah has i mean been. we always you know i use this term which is called uh, magic and logic and you know and I, I feel that very strongly that we've always driven this our business with this balance this perfect balance of the of magic you know the selection the curation the edit the storytelling and the logic of all the data and how do you marry those effectively because often the logic tells you not to do something but you need to keep the magic of a business. You need to keep its personality. You need to keep its DNA of what it is. And you need to accept the fact that sometimes things just don't have the return that they should. But you need to have that representation to really be creative and, and to, to create a point of difference. The other question around the magic part is how do you scale it? So when, you know, uh, another challenge that, you know, founder-led businesses like Matches, Fashion can often be faced with is like so much is originally driven by the founders, yeah. you know, and you and Ruth 
literally created the business from a single boutique in Wimbledon and had always had your DNA on everything. And so as the business began to scale and you had to hire more people and open warehouses and stuff, I mean, I think there's over, how many people work in matches now? Gosh, I, I couldn't tell you. I could tell you that in um, six months ago, it was about 600, 600 outside the DC. Yeah, outside the distribution center. So yeah. when a business starts growing like that, you know, how do you scale the magic part? The magic part that comes with the attention to detail. You know, I know Ruth. I know how she is. Like, I, uh, yeah, it's very hard. And I mean, I, I think the first point is you surround yourself with far brighter people than you. Um, and, you know, having, you know, being, getting an investment partner in the business enabled that that pathway um, to really bring in people that really understand how to scale and grow a business and to try and stay very close to the people that you're working with to try and instill that sense of of what the luxury brand is and who the consumer is. You know, people often forget who the customer is. They don't really know, and you need to make sure that that's embedded into their conversation. So I think partly that, I mean, particularly in, in the post-first round investment period, um, it was a challenge. We're growing so quickly with so many new people. I think we grew the team at, the po- at that point by about 60% in one year. Um, big challenge to try and Im- embrace bring them into the business um, and, and have them understand and embrace and the culture understand. yeah have them understand the culture and you know that culture for for us has always been around collaboration around not siloing departments around connectivity um, around people having a voice and around the ability to uh, share their opinion and I mean you know this and that we embrace a, a, a view that you know it's not about personal views or egos or politics it's only about what's best for the business and and how we drive that vision forward um but it's certainly challenging you mentioned investment yeah and that must have also been a critical decision along this journey as a business that operated independently that i think you bootstrapped for the initial years that's one of the biggest decisions any entrepreneur can make which is you know one to go out and raise money, and then two, who to raise that money from. Mm-hmm. How did you and Ruth navigate those two decisions? Well, I think I think the first point was really around why, and um, we'd reached a point where we were bootstrapped. We were we were growing the business incredibly fast. I mean, I think in 2011, the, the online business grew by around 50%, which was significant growth. Um, and we knew that we needed to invest in technology, we needed to invest in people. Um, to help deliver the future so that we had strong foundations. Um, and we needed to give people the opportunity of, of personal involvement in, in the future successes of the business. Um, so we decided that that's what we wanted to do. And I think everybody, every person who runs there, every founder has their own version of what they wanted to do. I personally didn't want to do multiple rounds. I wanted to bring enough money into the business to really propel the growth. Um, and I saw that as a journey. Was um, the business cash constrained at the time? Oh, yeah. It was very hard. Talk a little bit about that, because I imagine in a wholesale business where you're buying all this inventory up front yep. and it's growing 50 or 60% a year, yep. that's that's a tough business to finance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very challenging, um, and it was particularly challenging in the last year. Um, we... We had a, not the best support that we could possibly have had from our bank, to be quite honest, and it w- was very challenging, and they were putting a lot of pressure on us to, to bring investment into the business. Um, 
And I think that, um, you know, obviously you're growing and you're working on a stock churn. So if you're working on a three stock churn, which is pretty damn good, you've got to think about your suppliers and your, your investment in that inventory and Can how you, you manage Can you explain them. to our listeners what a three stock churn so is? So you're churning your stock three times a year. Okay. So every four months. Right. So, um, you know, I think that obviously when you're growing at those rates and your investment is in inventory, and you're buying that, and it's such a seasonal business, far more so even than it is now. But, you know, we're talking 10 years ago. I mean, you know, it was a very, very seasonal business where it was two drops every season. You know, there were tight periods that those goods were delivered. And in, largely, it's a digital journey that's actually changed that from a product perspective because people are always looking for newness and always looking for freshness. So it changes the cycle of product drops. Um but it was challenging, and we knew that we needed to grow the business to in order to do that. And I suppose we also felt that we needed to have another... We had four iterations of our site, so we needed to get another... The one that we had would reached this point. It was appropriate at the time, but it wasn't appropriate for the scale that we were going to go grow to. Um, so um, we had... I went out, um, met a great advisor who helped navigate the journey and introduced us to a lot of people, met a lot of VCs, and had a lot of conversations that I found extremely frustrating. Why? You know, I think that sometimes there's a lack of transparency in the conversation, which I find a bit annoying. I think sometimes, you know, it's a little bit of a charm offensive, but there's no real feedback. Um, I think that certainly one of the biggest issues for me was that they all were looking at the online performance and they were like, why have you got retail stores? Forget your retail stores, they're meaningless. They don't mean anything just focus on the online and I think that you know when you've run a business for as long as we had you know for 20 years and every decision I thought I'm jumping from the fat to the frying pan I went into a couple of the meetings and I, and I remember walking up to the advisor and I said I don't care where I end up but I ain't ending up with those people because that's going to make my life hell so you right. know, I'd rather not have a business than do this and then I met two great people the initial investors in the business um, Highland and um, Scottish Equity Partners um, How did you know they were the right partners for you? Do you know, I think that there was a real um, exceptional level, and I mean, it's an important thing to me, but there was an exceptional relationship and, and level of courtesy. They said that they would phone, and they did. Um, they said that they would respond to an email, and they did. Um, there was a transparency that came out, and there was also a willingness to support and help pre the deal. They were making introductions, they were talking to people, and most importantly, I think, they appreciated that probably Ruth and I kind of knew what we were doing, and they weren't going to try and tell us how to do our job. And they understood the importance to us of, of the bricks and mortar business. You know, I think it was... Uh, because, you know, I've said this to you before, for me, it's not about... Um, omnichannel or multi-channel it's just about touch points and it's about creating as many touch points as you possibly can with your customer and the more touch points you have the more loyal that consumer is the more they shop with you the more the average transaction value the more the more valuable they are so um, they understood the importance to retail to us so in a nutshell when they were asking for your elevator pitch at the time like you had gone from this suburban high-end boutique in Wimbledon to a multi-boutique chain yeah. in London with urban and suburban locations to ambitions to become what? For ambitions to grow the online, but to perceive the retail as, as a marketing opportunity, as bring beacons to our brand. So the bricks and mortar, that's how we were focusing it. It was really about the product that we were selling. And, and we knew that we needed to rationalize the retail piece. 
but the retail piece was still incredibly important. Um, but the vision was really how do we drive, and, and we had particular success in the US at the time, um, I think probably because of product offer, curation, availability of those products. Um, and the, the focus was really how do we really drive a significant business in the US and the UK. We're still having a, a scattergun approach to the rest of the world, but how do we drive those markets? The US opportunity is an interesting one because that landscape wasn't allergic or un, you know, unfamiliar with e-commerce. You know, there was mm. Neiman Marcus, Net-A-Porter had entered that market by that point, was doing pretty big business there. There were lots, you know, that's one of the most competitive consumer landscapes in the world. You know, what did what did Matches offer to the U.S. market that made it an interesting proposition, a unique proposition? Curation. Selection of brands, product. Um, you know, I think that you look at it and, and so many of these stores in the States have been driven by data and been driven by buyers who are just looking at spreadsheets and probably don't get close enough to the product and aren't. And, and really have their challenges as well because, you know, you need to have in a retail store, you need to have space, there needs to be its concession-based businesses. It's all of these different conversations that happen. They can't go and pick up interesting new brands. And for us, it was always about product. It was about inspiring your customer. How do you connect? How do you inspire them? And how do you offer something unique? And you may have these incredible international brands, but how do you put in something new? How do you bring in something fresh that's really going to inspire the customer? The truth is they might not drive the revenue, but they drive the engagement. They drive the interest. Sure. And they really drive the consumer that's not so competitive because, you know, maybe they're looking for that one brand. And you're the only retailer in the world that has it. <laughs> you know, you're the only online retailer that has it. So, What's an example of one of those brands that, that you, th from uh, those I days? Mean, I mean, I think that there are so many. I mean, Ruth launched so many labels with the buying team. Um, constantly, I'm like, oh God, I'm trying to even think, man. A lot of English labels, a lot of English brands we started. So, you know, we were the first one, Christopher Kane and Roxandra and all of these labels internationally. There were a lot of brands that we bought in that, that grew and developed. I mean, you know, at the time of the transaction, we had 300 labels, which is quite significant. I think now today we have around 500. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a significant offer of product. And we, you know, this emerging talent, the new brands and new designers, sometimes amazingly successful, sometimes not. Right. But it's that, it's that ability to create kind of a content experience in the browsing of you know, product and pages on matches fashion that I think even to this day is what, what makes it a unique yeah. proposition for mm -hmm. people because the idea of being able to discover something new, something that isn't on every other e-commerce site is really a, it's, it's really a strong proposition. And actually, although the U.S. was your focus, that's a proposition that works all around the world. Yeah. So yeah. what happened outside the U.K. and the U.S.? Um, you know, every market was doing pretty well. We were growing fast in Europe. We were growing very well in Australia. There was a lot of interest in around what was happening in Australia. And we started to do a footprint in, in uh, Asia, particularly Hong Kong. I think during the year that we uh, received the investment in 2012, the, the online business grew by over 100% and then accounted for... 60% of the total business sales. Wow. Um, and the following year, you know, we, we brought in the partners at the last quarter of 2012, and the following year, 2013, we grew by 120%. And we were then over three times the revenue online that we were for bricks and mortar. 
Um, so we were growing fast everywhere. I think that probably the US became an interesting proposition for us. We had one language, one product offer globally, no difference in any offer that was available globally. Um, and it became a point of actually how do we go out there and how do we connect with that audience and how do we build up those top tier customers. You know, for so many of these businesses, I don't, I don't know the numbers for others, but you know, certainly ours was um, 3% of our customers were driving 35% of our revenue. You know, so you have to really look after those customers and yeah. how you can do that internationally became part of the conversation. Yeah. One way to look after those customers has been, in addition to the boutiques, you, you created these townhouses. Yeah. Was that basically designed to take care of those that 3%? Like, what was the purpose of those physical... Well, I, I think the purpose was, was really to, to be kind of the ultimate expression of the brand. You know, I think that storytelling is very, very important to us. Relationships with brands is very important. How do you build that connection? And the townhouse opened really as a private shopping townhouse to connect with those consumers when they were in the country, if they lived in London or when they flew in that they would get an edit of selection and product. Um, but it was also an event space as well. So, you know, we held a lot of events there, um, a lot of different projects. I remember going in there once and we'd had five nights of men's evenings and, you know, from cigars, smoking to whiskey tasting to God knows what else. And and I was going up the stairs and one guy turned around to me and said, God, this is great, this place. How do I get a membership to it? <laughs> it's kind of the greatest compliment. You know, it's a hospitality piece um, carried through. And Carlos really is is the next expression of that. You know, Ruth and I, we were carrying these projects out internationally. We did pop-ups. We did a great one with Vetmore in Korea. We did a number of them in, in the US. And we did the last one we did in the US. Um, we had a massive townhouse in the Upper East Side. We had five days of eventing, collaborating with people, everything from yoga classes to flower arranging, just really understanding who the customer is and finding out what other interests and not focusing just on fashion and bringing those people and their audiences in as well to connect with new customers. I think we had something around three and a half thousand people walk through the door, but we reached through social, through Facebook Live, through podcasts, for all of these things, 13 million people in those five days. Wow. And that's really what Carlos is about. Carlos is a, a space with retail that will be product, will be interesting product. You won't go in there and find the major brands. You'll go in, although there's an interesting side point there, because the first project is with Prada, and Prada are doing a takeover for two weeks. That's a change. Yeah, I know. And it was, um, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a great moment when we, could, we started to work with them again. I went to the buying appointment. I hadn't been to one for... for well, since we stopped working in it, I hadn't been to a buying appointment period for probably four or five years. And I went along, drove the buyers mad with my memories of, uh, of, of spending many an hour there. Um, yeah, so the, the Prado are doing a takeover. They've taken two floors of retail and they've got an event there. And it's, but it's only because they were doing a capsule collection with them. So it's just exclusive product with them. But then it's also a place that was going to be a media broadcasting centre. So, you know, we'll have, we've got a studio upstairs. We've got um, Sky Ginning Hall coming in and doing a dinner. We've got Maisie Cafe in Paris coming over and doing it. We've got a, like a cafe upstairs. So there's a whole eventing process where we talk to people. And, you know, London is such an interesting place and you get so many people coming through. It's a great opportunity for us to, to connect with our partners and our brands and, and people we collaborate with and share that to a global audience, not just the people who are able to come in and, and uh, have the personal experience with it. So 
This past year has been quite a momentous year for Mattress Fashion and its journey. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the decision to exit the business because that's not a conversation I've managed to have with several of the other entrepreneurs we're talking to on this journey because many of them are a bit earlier yeah. in their journey and haven't reached the stage yet where they're emotionally or financially ready to make that decision. But the decision to sell your business is a big one. How do you navigate that? What's going through your head as you as you think about that decision? Some, you know, you've built this business from the first store yeah. to a you know global enterprise. You know, how how do you decide to sell your business? I suppose, in truth, Imran, that the the decision was made probably five years ago. You know, we brought investors into the business, and you know, you can be under no illusion what their version of the business is going to be. And I was very clear with them. I said, you know, look. I'm going to do this for five years. We're going to do the very best we can to maximize the value for the shareholders, but I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. So you set a time limit. Mentally, we set a time limit. And I told the guys, um, five years is how long we want to do it for. Um, you know, of course, time limits are to be changed. You know, it never may not work out that way, but it did actually work out that way. Um, so that decision was made then. And then really, I suppose, closer to the, to, to the recent um, acquisition, it was really about what are we going to do? You know, are we going to IPO this business? And it was a big conversation, of course, um, if we IPO'd. And, you know, we always built a business for an IPO. We built it profitably. Um, as I said to you, I didn't want to do multiple rounds. So we built a business that, that generated its own value and profit and cash um, and didn't require outside, continued outside investment. But we discussed the whole IPO process. And, you know, being such significant shareholders of the, of the business as Ruth and I were, we'd had to have done a pre-IPO, then we'd have had to do the IPO, and we would still be left with this significant stake. And, and frankly, I didn't want to run a public company. No interest in doing that. I mean, a lot of people do, and, and bravo to them, but that's not something I wanted to do. Um, and nor did I want to not run a business and have such a significant investment in it. So really the, the sale became the point um, and we got an amazing guy to help us, a guy called Chantati Joubert, who was fantastic, um, who helped us navigate the journey. And, and I said, let's go out, let's see what's available. And let's, we've had, I mean, clearly over the five years, we've had so many conversations and people talking to us and, you know, nothing really. And do you, when you're not ready to sell and all those people are approaching you, how do you deal with that? Because can't it become a distraction if people are regularly coming to you? You, know, you need to manage the business. You need to grow the business. You have your five-year time frame. But, you know, X conglomerate or B private equity firm come to you and say, hey, you know. You know, I think, I, you know how it is, Imran. You find time for everything. You know, it's funny. You just manage to. And, you know, I'm an incredibly curious person. And I rarely refuse a conversation. Because frankly, I think from most things you learn something, you know, and if you're not learning, you're not growing. So, you know, for me, those conversations were interesting. I mean, obviously, you had to manage them a little bit. And, you know, I don't want to waste people's time. But certainly, we always um, spoke to people and, and shared our journey and, and shared what we were trying to achieve and what we were trying to do. And I think we got to this point where actually, you know, we were reaching my, my mental five years and said, okay, look, now I think we've acted on some of the things that we've listened to because you know in that process of meeting people you get feedback about your business which is really interesting you start to learn 
how people feel about it. And, and that outside input is so valuable. So what kind of input did you get from those early conversations? You know, you get it from the questions that they ask you, right. where their focus point is. You know, what's happening to the margin here? Well, how is this developing? What's your, you know, how much is this segment of the consumer? So you kind of start to really debate some of the topics that people are thinking about, which helps you define what you you can learn and maybe adapt into your own business. So I think that we reached this point and I, you know, the business was very profitable. It was doing extremely well. The growth rates were great. And um, I said, let's explore the option. But I wasn't, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to do it. You know, I had these great partners who were incredible, um, who supported all the choices that we'd made over the years and, and never questioned me too much about them. Um, but I said to them, look, I can't tell you that we should do this until I can see the people that will take it forward and, and what terms that they want to take it forward. You know, if they want me to be significantly involved, I don't really want to do it because I might as well do it myself and do the IPO. Right. Because <laughs> I know there's considerably so more value in that. So another condition for you was that you and Ruth could step back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in order for that to happen, the business needed to be not too dependent on either of you. So yeah. had you started putting an, into place... We had an amazing management team. We have an amazing yeah. management team of really strong, capable people. And, and Ruth and our role over the, over the three years was really around how do we do the macro, so the really big thinking pieces, and how do we do the micro? the real the sense of detail you know drive everyone mad you know what's happening here what you know that that that, that email's wrong this this isn't this image is wrong you know those real detail points because so retail truly is yeah. detail so yeah. we did my, nothing in between right believe me there was nothing in between I couldn't tell you anything in between but i could tell you what the the tiny details were and i could tell you what the big strategy perspective was and we had this incredible team of people an amazing CFO who worked for me for seven years, um, Fiona, amazing press people. I mean, really, really great people um, who um, will drive the business forward. And, you know, I, you know, from my perspective, challenge of doing it, absolutely. But, you know, I'm looking forward to be surprised and delighted by what they achieve and what mm -hmm. they do and, and rather jealous of the fact that we didn't do it ourselves while we were there. I'm sure there was more than one party that was interested did you yeah. just go to the party that offered the highest bid or were there other factors that you considered in selling the business? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, not always, it's not always a level playing field. Um, there were quite a few people um, we were talking to and it's not a level playing field because it's not just about the money, it's about the context, it's about, you know, the expectation, it's about the rollover. So there's so many different things that you have to evaluate. Um, and actually, you know, interestingly, um, Apex, not just for the financial and because of the position, but also I felt very strongly that, that they would be great people to take the business forward. Um, how did you know? How do you know? Um, I just think it's a, it's a language. It's a, it's a conversation. It's, it's also, you know, it's some of those data room questions that come in. I mean, you know, during that period, I can tell you that we had a data room that had three and a half thousand questions and we're not talking simple questions we're talking you know give us the breakdown of the growth rates in of particular category groups in every single country in the globe i mean you know real detail points thank god we had an amazing bi uh, team who who managed that process but you got a sense of what they were doing how they were looking at it um you know the people who bought the business are incredibly smart and um, I know that they will drive it to success. I know that they're going to, to really 
um, drive it forward in a great way. So looking back, yeah, it's kind of an amazing story, and congratulations to you and Ruth, because I remember meeting you early on and you know, just seeing this um, phenomenon. I lived, as you might know, on Ledbury Road for many years where the Matches store is, so literally saw the, the transformation. Yeah. Um, and it's it's incredible. The changing of the stores, the, the, the rebranding, the whole you know yeah. everything yeah. everything that happened over that decade. Um, but looking back, what what's the advice you would offer uh, other entrepreneurs, many of whom are listening to this series because we've created it specifically for them. We've called it Drive because it takes a certain kind of resilience and persistence and perseverance to build any kind of global business. Yeah. What's the advice that you have to offer entrepreneurs who want to do the same? Oh gosh, there's, there, I suppose there's so many things that, you know, that, that I think take part of it. It's, you know, it's not one particular thing. Trust your intuition. That's incredibly important. Um, you know, surround yourself with smarter people who really know their specialty and what they're doing. It's very important. Um, build a great culture build a business with people who are passionate about what they're doing, who feel involved and who feel they make a difference. And that's becoming more and more important. You know, it's becoming, talk about 50% of the workforce by 2020 is going to be millennials and 10% generations ahead. You've got to rethink the way that you engage with these people and how you really drive them forward to, to success. Um, I think do the right thing. You know, I, I can honestly say to you that in 30 years, I don't think I've ever done anything that I feel I shouldn't have done or I'm embarrassed about. I think that, you know... From an ethical standpoint. From an ethical standpoint, yeah. I think that treat people in the right way. Always, always. And and really build relationships. And I think that relationships and um, are so important and people underestimate that. Take real care about the detail about that. Um, focus on the, the customer. You know, if you're dealing with a customer-facing business, and, and we all are to some extent... You really need to focus on that consumer and, and what they can do for you and embrace the opportunity of technology as an enabler, not just as a, a, as a headline. Right. Is there anything looking back when you think about the decisions you made that you would revisit now or do differently? Oh, um, Imran, I suppose, you know, look, I, I, I don't... I, things that I would do differently. Look, maybe I would have opened in London earlier. I'd opened a store in London. You know, would I have opened an online business earlier? I mean, you know, maybe a couple of years, but I don't think it would have made a significant difference to our journey. You know, it's the, really the technology. I mean, you know, Natalie did such an amazing job from 2000 to 2006 and, and really set the tone for everyone. And my God, that must have been hard. It was, uh, you know, quite a journey for her. But um, I think for us, it's... Uh, it was the timing was right. And I think that probably, would you do something differently? I think the lessons are really how you learn something. That the things that you do wrong are really how you benefit and how you learn how to do things better. All right. Well, Tom, always a pleasure sitting down with you, chatting about uh, everything. We've had so many conversations like this yeah. over the years. And I'm glad to finally have the opportunity to share it with our listeners. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Imran. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of entrepreneurship. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to hear more episodes and give us a rating and email us at podcast at businessoffashion.com with any questions or guest suggestions. To learn more about BOF, click on the description notes in this episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time only, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. So to get 25% off your first year of a BOF Professional membership, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at checkout. That's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.